Um, if you'd like to now turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 34, uh, which is page 93. Sorry, I'm going to set this down. Um, we are going to read the first section of this, and then we're going to skip down a wee bit down to verse 29. Um, we're going to leave out many of the wonderful laws that um, you'll read about in the middle, which we're just not going to go into detail. I'm not going to go into detail this morning. If you want to know why you shouldn't boil a goat in its mother's milk, um, ask me at the door, and uh, I'll, give you, I'll try to give you as brief an answer as I can. But let, let's hear God speak to us through his holy word. Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first one and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then if you want to skip to me to verse 29, just over the page. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. And afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands of the Lord who had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what had been commanded. And they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put on the veil and go over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. Um, there's a, a writer, A.W. Tozer, who's got a famous quote that I, I really like. Um, and it's that he says that the most important thing about you is whatever comes into your head whenever you say you believe in God. The most important thing about you is what comes into your head when you think about God. And so this morning, as we work our way through this passage, that's, that's the question I want to try and put out to you. What comes into your head when you think about God? I think we 
often we'll say, well, you know, we, we have a big view of God. And this passage is trying to communicate us a big view of God. And, you know, we sing songs so often, you know, our God is a great big God. He's got the whole world in his hands. And we often think God is a big God. And we think of that as in he's maybe just really, really tall. We don't maybe think about what that means. Because what this chapter of the Bible is showing us is a ginormous picture of God and one that dwarfs anything our imagination could come up with. I think often whenever we think of God, we think of him as, you know, somebody who's big, who's lovely, and who's kind, and he's a red suit away from being Santa Claus. And as William challenged us last week, whenever we think of God and whenever we come to worship God, is our God big enough to be the sort of God that we want him in our lives? Or do we merely want his blessing and his gifts? Because what Exodus and the drum I've kept banging as we've went through it is that what Exodus is about is about God coming into relationship with his people. And this chapter gives a glorious revolution, revelation of a God who is big, who is grand, who is beautiful, and who is glorious. A God who is so awe-inspiring that we cannot help but want to know more of him. That is the picture of God that we have painted through this passage. And it starts off with a wonderful, wonderful act of God's grace. One of the things I've kept saying as we've been going through Exodus is that there is not a, a, a dichotomy, a false dichotomy between the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament isn't about a God of wrath and the New Testament about a God of love. It's the same grace throughout the whole Bible. Because what has happened just before this passage What's happened is the Israelites have entered into a covenant with God or a vow with God, sort of something equivalent to, we might say, in a marriage or a contract, where these entered into a relationship with God and they have immediately broken that covenant by worshiping a, a idol made of gold that's a golden bull or a golden calf. The tablets of stone that had the, what are in a sense, the terms of conditions of the promise have been broken. The contract's been ripped up. The people of God are no longer in relationship with God. They are now just cut off from him again. And you would almost think if we entered into business with somebody and drew up a contract and they immediately broke the contract, we probably wouldn't enter into business with them again. If we had an affair on our honeymoon, we would very, it'd be very unlikely we would make it to our, is it our diamond anniversary? We would cut the tie. But yet this is the God we see revealed in the book of Exodus, who steps closer to the people and enters into a relationship with them. Even though they are wicked, even though they are stiff-necked, even though they may be stubborn and slow to learn and arrogant, God, out of his own infinite love and self-giving, enters into a relationship with them. 
That is what is going on with this passage. And in some ways, the greatest act of love that God shows his people in this book is in this chapter. Because God shows him himself and his glory. He shows them what it is to be in relationship with him. It shows that she's showing them the sort of God that they are worshiping and following. And he has left them in a position where they cannot help but want that God with them, no matter what. That's what William was working through last week as Moses cried out before God saying, don't send us into the promised land without you. There's no point going into the promised land unless we have the God who's promised it to us with us. And so God in his grace starts out in this chapter to bring this people to himself out of sheer grace. And he gives them a wonderful picture of himself. And I just want to look at those two pictures of God that we're going to see in this chapter of God on the top of the mountain and God on the bottom of the mountain. So what happens at the top of the mountain? At the top of the mountain, God enters into the covenant again. He remarries the unfaithful spouse. He gets back into business with the crooked and wicked dealer. And he says, I will show you my face regardless. The stone tablets we see in verse 1 are crafted again just like the old ones were. And Moses is called up into his presence. And the whole mountain is declared holy. Only Moses is to climb up it. There's to be no goats or sheep rambling around the sides of it grazing. The mountain is holy and set apart to the Lord to show us something of the importance of the God that they are about to encounter on it. Um, I have a habit of getting into rabbit holes and getting really obsessed with things for about six months and then never thinking about them ever again. Um, I think it's an early sign of becoming a middle-aged man. Um, but one of the things I got really into at one stage was I got really into mountain hiking. Um, I lived in Inverness in the Highlands for a while, and we would have frequently went Monroe bagging. And if we have any Monroe baggers in the room, you know exactly what that means. And to those of you who have never bagged a Monroe, you think I've lost it. Um, but they're the tallest mountains in Scotland. Um, but I remember one day thinking, you know, it would be really, really cool to be the first person to climb a mountain ever, to say that you were the first person to ever get to the top of it. Now, Mount Everest is Tekken, obviously, and K2 beside it, Zoe would never forgive me, uh, given how many people have been killed climbing it. So I thought, there's bound to be easier mountains. And there are actually a surprising number of mountains in the world that have never been climbed. Surprising number. I, can't, I don't think there's an official statistic, but it's in the hundreds. Um, but the issue is, it's illegal to climb them. And the reason it's illegal to climb them is because for a lot of the countries that these mountains are in, the, the gods of the people around them, they would say they reside at the top of the mountains. It's an ancient, ancient idea that if you want to get close to God, the place that you meet them is on the top of a mountain. And so for a lot of people, they say, well, that's too holy for us to go close to. And so it's illegal to climb it. And that's almost something of what's going on here where this mountain is declared so holy and so special, no one is to climb it except God's appointed person, which is Moses. And Moses, as he climbs the mountain, has this wonderful encounter with the presence of God. And we see it's alluded to in the chapter before, starting in verse 33, or chapter 33, verse 21, 
Whenever the Lord says that there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Moses, as he climbs this mountain, a cloud descends like a cloud that led the Israelites through the the desert and led them through the Red Sea. It now descends upon the holy mountain that Moses has went up. And he has this wonderful encounter with the presence of God, where God in all of his fullness comes to dwell on the mountain. And he declares his name in what the, the, a lot of Jewish folks now will call the 13 attributes of God, where he will say, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And Moses has to be sheltered in the cleft of the rock from this presence. Does that ever strike you as a little bit strange? You know, so often I think, in our view of God, we think of God as almost like a a lovely big fella upstairs, somebody who's approachable and someone who we can just mosey on up to. I wonder if you've ever heard the story of Babe Ruth, the famous baseball player, whenever he met King George. And Babe Ruth was one of the best athletes in baseball at the turn of the century. He was probably the closest thing some Americans will say that America ever got to royalty. He is enshrined in America's uh, heart because he was the best baseball player of all time in the sport that they made up by copying rounders. And so (laughs) whenever the king came to meet the New York Mets, is the New York Mets? Anyway, New York baseball team. Um, I'm I'm using a sports analogy and I'm outside of my comfort zone. Whenever he went to meet this New York baseball team, these baseball players were sat down and they were told, now, you do not speak to him unless you're spoken to. Whenever he speaks to you, you say, yes, your majesty, and under no conditions do you touch him. Okay. Now, I don't know how many of us would ever need to be told not to touch somebody unwillingly, but apparently that's clearly Americans are a lot more of the huggy type. Um, So King George is brought into the room and Babe Ruth immediately stands up, pushes the bodyguards aside, puts his hand out and says, hiya, kingy, put it there. And often I think that's the relationship we, we think that we have with God, where he's, you know, he's kind of the buddy-buddy guy who we can go to and who has this no worries, it's no problem, it's fine. He's kind of like an elderly relative who we keep in our hearts. We've sentimentalized him in so much, and we neglect what is actually something of his glory to it. The reason we marvel at our salvation and we marvel at what Jesus has done is that there is something about God that is so pure and so perfect that those of us who are not pure and perfect cannot draw near close on our own. There is something about God that is, and we never use this word very much to describe God, but there is something terrifying in some ways about God. That Moses must be hid in the cleft of the rock to experience the presence of God shows you something of the sheer intensity and power of God. If we were going to meet somebody who we thought was the most important person in the world, be that a president or a prime minister, we would wear our best clothes, we would be in our best behavior. 
And yet how much more powerful and impressive is the God who made the very ground that we step on and the very countries that those rulers preside over? The God that we worship is a holy God and a mighty God and a glorious God and a God who is so vastly powerful that all other metrics do not come close to describing how great and glorious and awe-inspiring he is. We have no other point of reference to think about him. He is the infinite one. He was the one who was there before the worlds began. He was the one who has seen wars and nations rise and fall. He is the one who has seen tectonic plates shift at the very voice that he gave whenever he said, would the earth come out of the sea? This is the God that we worship. And Moses, whenever he enters into his presence, you know, it says that you will see my back, but and I'm going to quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism because I have to. You know, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, what is God? God is the spirit, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit, which means God does not have a body before the incarnate Christ. So God does not have a body. So what Moses encounters here, a lot of scholars will say, is not like he literally saw the back of Moses, the way you might see my back, but he sees what is, in a sense, the... the the mere slight absence of God's presence just after he has left. Almost like when you have a friend or family member who wears too much cologne and you, you can tell when they've been in a room because they linger in the air. Um, but that is in a sense what Moses encounters, the lingering of God in the air. And it is so powerful and so profound, his face beams with the glory of God to an extent where the other Israelites are afraid to ever even come near him. This is the glory and wonder and majesty of the God that we worship. And so I ask you this morning, is your God big enough for that? Is your God big enough for that? We live in a time post-1960s counterculture that wants to see institutions and power and all of that stripped down and we want to be able to get close to people and we want to forget about all of that. But here's the thing, the God we worship is glorious enough that we ought to have some sense of awe and reverence when we behold his face. It's like the words that we read in C.S. Lewis's Narnia, I'm sure you know them. Whenever Sophie or Susan is talking to uh, Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, and she asks, is he, is, he, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver replies, nobody said anything about him being safe, but he's good. This is the God that we worship. Or if you've ever read The Wind in the Willows, one of my favorite passages in it, is this moment where Ratty and Mole go out on the waters looking for one of the otters, Portly, who's gotten lost and he's been gone for a few days and they come across him nestled in the feet of some mythical creature and Mole turns to Rat and says, Mole, are you afraid of this great mythical creature they've just encountered? And Ratty replies, of him? Oh, never. Oh, never. And yet, oh, Mole, I'm so very afraid. And the creature's bow to the earth and worship. As Moses, whenever he is encountered 
the presence of the God that we worship this morning. It says, at once, immediately. He crouches to the ground and worships, for he has seen the glory of God. That is the vision of God at the top of the mountain. And we do ourselves a disservice if we leave it there. Because God comes down the mountain. Moses, as we see in verses 29 and following, descends the mountain. And his face, it says in the NIV, that his face radiated. Some of your translations will say that his face um, beamed or was illuminated. Um, If any of you have a Latin Bible with you this morning, as I'm sure many of you do, it will say that Moses grew horns um, because there's a bit of ambiguity here in in what the Hebrew word means. And if if any of you ever go to Rome and you see Michelangelo's depiction of Moses, it's horned. And there's a lot of debate about what exactly does it mean that his face radiated or his face shone or his face had horns. And there's a, you know, you could argue around in circles about it all day. But there's one thing scholars have come to agree on, is that whenever Moses descends from the mountain, his face is filled with a grandeur and a glory that it did not have before. As Charles Spurgeon once said, those eyes which had looked upon the glory of God were not likely to wax dim amid earthly scenes. Moses comes down the mountain, beaming with the glory of God, And in a sense, what this is doing at this point is God is saying, you have tried to relate to me through idols, but here is the man you will relate to me through. For he beams with my glory and reflects my glory to you. I will speak through him and you will hear my voice as you hear him speak. And that's what's going on here. God is appointing Moses as the one through whom he will speak and through whom the people will relate to God. He is the one who will tell them about the laws. He is the one who will mediate this covenant relationship they have just entered into. This God who is so holy, so perfect and so pure that they must be relate to them through a mediator who is Moses. God's man has come down the mountain so that they may know him and know him better. But as Christians, we don't just believe that God's man has come down the mountain because we believe that God man has come down the mountain. We've entered in that time of year where we read 1 John again and again, uh, or John chapter 1. And I'm sure we know verse 14 of it oh so well, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. At Christmas time, we celebrate glory because we celebrate the glory of the God who has made himself known to us through his Son. That glory that in all other respects might seem so far off and removed from us, otherworldly, unapproachable light, suddenly becomes approachable, knowable, and is something we can relate to. Because we now relate to God, not just as ourselves, but we relate to him through his own son, 
through him who shows us the glory of God. Why is Jesus Christ the single most compelling person in all of history? Because he is showing us something of the glory of God in his love for us. That is the glory we glimpse at at Christmas. That God would not be far off, but God would enter into space and time. That Jesus would bleed as you and I bleed. Be bored as you and I are bored. Live as you and I live. That God would come close in him. That we might know him and know his glory. So I ask you this morning, how big is your view of God? How big is your view of God? Is it vast enough that you realize that the only way we can get to know him is through his son? Or is he so small that we think we can butter him up by being nice and polite? Would we have a vast view of God? And would we see his glory as we get to know his son? Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your glory. For who is a God like you, forgiving sin and iniquity, and allowing us to know you intimately through your son? Lord, would we bask in his glory and that we may call him brother, and you are Father. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.